0: Hi, I'm talking to Lauren Euler, author of Fake Accounts, out now with... Catapult Press. Lauren Euler's essays on books and culture have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, London Review of Books, The Guardian, New York Magazine's The Cut, The New Republic, Book Forum, and elsewhere. Born and raised in West Virginia, she now divides her time between New York and Berlin. Fake Accounts received a starred review in Publishers Weekly, a woman in a tailspin, it says, discovers that her boyfriend is an anonymous online conspiracy theorist in this incisive and funny debut novel that brilliantly captures the claustrophobia of lives led online and persona, tested in the real world. Before we start, I'd just like to share with listeners just some of the f- funniest lines in this book, IMO in my opinion, on page 166 in Discussing Computer Programmers but who makes the back end for the back end? On page 187, an orgasm can be ironic, certainly, especially if it's dramatic. Hi, Lauren, thank you for talking to me.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm going to ask you to do something that I think might seem possibly trite, but it would really indulge me and be really super fun and interesting for me. Could you please describe your narrator in three words? And I'd kind of like you to do this as Lauren, the book critic not lauren the
1: novelist oh no i think um okay so the cliche words that i this is how i work as a book critic right i'm like the cliche word would be prickly so we're not saying prickly what's a synonym for that that has more nuance um let's see um uh i guess she's she's uh difficult um analytical, and uh, I, something like funny, but you, you know, she has, she, so I guess you could say funny, difficult, analytical, and funny. Okay. You're getting a, you're getting a view into my book reviewing process, which is that it takes me a long time. <laughs> I love it.
0: I'm in love with this process. Um, I do think a lot of the humor in the book is tied to this sort of like, obviousness, your narrator inhabits. Like, obviously, this man should be pining for me. Obviously, that person was wrong. Obviously, my conspiracy theorist boyfriend dying in a freak bike accident happens. I'm wondering, like, does this woman already exist in fiction and I'm just not reading well? Or where can I find more of this woman in fiction?
1: You know, I think that there's going to be, like, slant comparisons. And I'm sure that there's someone that I haven't read that that is a great analog. But I think... Um, There are some characters in Muriel Spark books that are quite like this. Uh, The most recent one that I read is Loitering with Intent. And she's obviously much cooler um, and much less maximalist than I am. But there's this like, you know, I don't want to like sound, I don't want to be arrogant, but I really like to read a book that features someone who's smart, right? Um, uh-huh. And so, I think probably a good analog is someone like Philip Roth's narrators, um, and people who are not purporting to take things too seriously. Is there any of that in more contemporary oh, authors? I mean, I think there's some. There's definitely some David Foster Wallace. there um perhaps people get too annoyed by him uh to to appreciate it but I think that there's definitely that I think Helen DeWitt often I think what I was interested in doing is having her narrate the book as the narrator of the book and taking some of the like it's obviously very close to her perspective so she doesn't know she doesn't know a lot of things that are happening so she can only narrate it to you as if she's narrating it to you but she has the feel and sort of attitude of an omniscient, a third-person omniscient narrator. <laughs> Does that make sense? Totally. So so she's like, as she's very realistic as a first person. I'm not, I hope I'm not, you know, giving her perspectives that she couldn't possibly have. But she feels that she is the only narrator that there is. And, but you don't think that there's like a lack of this type
0: of, of character and fi- I guess is what I'm asking really. Like if you wrote this in because you like reading an intelligent person who, you know, is kind of clear in this way or direct, or I frankly think pompous, but that's kind of why I love her.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that there is, I think that there is a, a general lack of sort of like forceful, confident, um, you know, projects in general in contemporary literature. I think uh, a lot of my sort of resolve to do it this way comes from reading lots of European novels, whatever's translated. Um, and they just are much more at ease with like writing a writing a book. And I think that particularly in the United States um, and probably in the UK and in Canada as well. I don't want to speak for, I don't want to speak for you but I would assume that it's nothing similar uh, there's this there has been and particularly when I was writing this book there has been a resistance to acknowledging the fact that writing a book is what you're is what you're doing when you're an author and when you publish a book that you made it um, and you did it on purpose and there's this sort of attitude like oh I just sort of wanted to do this so it just sort it just sort of appeared and people really have this fantasy of the author as like not being involved And I really don't, I, you know, I really don't like that. And I think what's great about a novel or any work of art um, is that it is an example of something that someone has made and has thought about. So that's sort of part of the philosophy of why I have her narrating in this way. Right. I've also read you be critical of the idea
0: of moral purity. And I think this generally comes across, you know, in your criticism, but now, especially in your novel, but I also think that a kind of widespread argument for fiction um, that, you know, just generally gets said is that fiction is the one place that ought to, you know, cultivate and 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 be the one space that can gather moral nuance. I'm wondering if you kind of agree with that cliche. I'm wondering if you agree with that cliche.
1: Yeah, I do. And I I don't, you know. I appreciate that you say it's a cliche because it's very hard to talk about like what fiction does without sort of reaching for these like little maxims that we tell ourselves. Right. Right. Um, but it's, you know, some of them are true. Like it, they, they're fiction because, because it's not literally true. can you can really say, any you know, you can explore lots of different ideas and situations and um, you know, context that you can't in an essay, I think, in the same way. Uh, and in part because there is this like horrible social media audience, which is especially judgmental and um, you know, the things that I am afraid of when I'm writing pieces in public or, or with a book and, and seeing the reception is really not their reviews or like anything someone would write. But, like, being mocked online, it's, like, such a visceral um, deterrent to taking a risk that I can completely understand why contemporary literature is the way that it is. What do you mean? Like,
0: that's the place where the conversation can be had, like, in
1: a better way? Well, I think that everybody's opinion on social media has the potential to matter, so if you're trying to depict real nuance, right, like real moral ambiguity, real sort of badness, real sort of like dirtiness, there are certain things that people on social media really accept in that realm, right? Like that we've uh-huh. gone through a phase of like, unlikable women characters are feminist or whatever. <laughs> um and like, if they're doing something bad, it's because of feminism. And so that was acceptable. But then there are other kinds of things, that, like if a character does, you know, if a man is doing it and it's bad, then it's an example of toxic masculinity and not like just how life is, right? Right. Um, and I think that there are just these really specific and kind of hard, if, you, if you're not sort of online all the time, hard to figure out codes for what will get made fun of and what won't. And so, I think that what I like about fiction, and also what I think is the sort of what I like about fiction, is that it can resist that sort of attitude and that sort of approach to life. But I also think that the reason, to go back to your earlier question, that contemporary literature has felt, at least to me, quite draining and, um, you know, kind of a little bit boring is because everybody is trying to do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. there's this like idea that there is a perfect book and you should be striving for it. <laughs> and it's just different ways of saying that everybody's minds seem quite narrow these days.
0: Yeah, I would fully agree, which is why I think this book is getting the kind of reception it is. I think it's, uh, or I think, you know, I, I do love, love this book, but I think even if you look at the recent um, you know, bigger hits, debuts especially that have seemingly come out of nowhere, I think it's because they precisely inhabit that space. It's almost like people argue for moral directness, but deep down they don't really want it either.
1: Right. It says, (laughs) you know, you don't, it's, I maybe. you know, it's, I believe that having sort of moral clarity in many of the sort of flashy, headlining, political situations that we encounter in our lives now is not that hard I don't think that many of the questions like many of the moral questions that novels are asking are like very basic right and like it's like of course mm-hmm. I agree with you <laughs> why why is racism there- is bad yeah, <laughs> I mean, racism is really bad <laughs> yeah that's not why did you want to write a novel about right You know, because I'm like, I want to write a novel because I don't understand something and it's like difficult, right? Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. that lots of people also want that. So, and I I think probably more people want that than admit it necessarily, or they want to read that and they just think that this is what sells and on and on and on and on. So, for those who don't know, this is your debut novel out with Catapult
0: Press, uh, and prior to this, you were freelancing. Still are, um, had built yourself, and had built yourself a reputation as kind of a terrifyingly smart and like sort of no holds barred book critic, which makes for a very intimidating person, Lauren, as I've already told you. And I'm sure this you're going to be met with this question over and over again, um, you know, with, with publicity for this book. But how did it feel to go? Having written so extensively about what does or doesn't make a good novel, what does it take to then attempt to write your own novel, assuming
1: that you would want it to be good? Oh, yeah. Actually, I'm fine if it's Oh um, No, I want <laughs> it to be good. Um, I think that I have, I think that writing criticism has shown me a lot of things that I don't want to do. Um, and occasionally some things that I do like, uh, but I am careful. I think not to copy or emulate, you know imitate people too much because I don't think that that works. But you can sort of glean like broad, inspiring lessons from writers that you like without copying them, <laughs> if that makes right. sense. Right. Um, but I think that criticism made me feel like there's this old writing advice which is to like write the book that you want to read and the book that I wanted to read really didn't exist right. um, in, in the way that I wrote it so from that angle it was kind of easy like you sort of create like a negative space of like not that not that not that and then the real challenge is to make something positive that still fits in that space and um, I think that you know in some ways the novel is about being negative and like the consequences for that and what, you know, what it does to a person and people. Um, but also a sort of attempt to like process through each sort of negative situation and like understand that maybe you're not going to have a moral lesson or grow or have an epiphany in any way, but you still have to sort of keep going in that like the like sense, right? That you're Mm -hmm. processing through all of these experiences and thoughts, and you're learning and knowing, and it doesn't lead you anywhere, actually.
0: I'm sure you were writing, you know, or working on your own writing, um, even before releasing the novel when you were working primarily on your criticism. But now that this novel is out there in the world, has it shifted you as a critic? Do you think your next review will be different in any way?
1: Um, No. (laughs) I actually don't. (laughs) I actually, I really feel that I read the books carefully and I don't want to get things wrong Mm -hmm. and I would feel sad if I started doing that tit for tat I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Thing that I think people assume happens in the criticism realm, which is to say that like many people who write book reviews also write books, and so they don't want to like put a target on their back as I have done, and 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 put those you know set themselves up for negative reviews. But I think that I have this sort of fantasy of like reciprocity <laughs> and. and hope that people reviewing my book just like take it seriously and try to get it right. And that's all that I can do. But I think that there are always going to be people who who dislike me, but I think there are people who dislike most, you know, a lot of, everybody has people who dislike them. It's just that mine all feel comfortable talking about it. (laughs) I think that's sort of something to be proud of. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, because I, because I you know, it's reciprocal. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like evil reciprocity, which is like, they think that I'm mean, so they can be mean as well. Um, you know. But what are you going to do now? This
0: book tour has revealed that you're just, it turns out you're an extremely delightfully warm person.
1: Well, <laughs> well, you know, I doesn't that add to the charm, <laughs> but, but I, you I, I, I have a double personality. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you also do
0: mock yourself almost in this novel. And I say yourself, but I guess by that really, I mean you in the modern world, you inhabit. So a few things you take a stab at, uh, you know, intellectualism, publishing, writing a sex scene, astrology, online dating. And the book is broken into these segments with one section even marked off as middle, nothing happens. With these segments, are you preemptively talking to a future critic of your book? Like, listen, yes, before you can tell me, I know what this is.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'm thinking, I'm, you know... I think the best way to do that kind of thing is to be funny about it because we do live in this highly reflexive self-aware time and i hope what comes through in the book is that you inevitably have to develop this self-awareness but it's not going to get you anywhere (laughs) necessarily um and i think that the sort of nods to how the book is functioning in the world and like who i am as a critic are just a little. I don't know, someone said Easter eggs, but you don't, I hope that you don't need to get those jokes in order to enjoy the book and even to understand those passages broadly. I think that it just functions on a, a bunch of different levels, but I think more generally, we live in a time where people are constantly trying to anticipate things, and I think particularly in 2017, which is when I started writing the book, People were just talking constantly about what was going to happen. What was Trump going to do? What what is what does this mean for the future? It was all this sort of like anticip- dreadful anticipation. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to incorporate that into the structure of the form of the novel somehow. Um, and ultimately, I hope that it's sort of revealed that I'm quite skeptical of this, of this sort of project of trying to predict the future. Um, because there's going to, a bad thing is always going to happen, but it's like never the bad thing that you expect.
0: Right. And, you know, self-awareness is hilarious, or it's at least it's part of comedy. So yeah. I I don't think um not contextualizing you will, will take anything away from the book. I think it's just funny, but, but speaking of, you know, the very um, now moment that you, you set this book in, you set it along the timeline of Trump's presidency presidency. It's a very particular present. You even managed to drop terms like pivot to video in this novel. I can't think of anything more timely. (laughs) It's that contemporary. So how do you hope this
1: very now book gets read in the future? Well, I tried to stick really close to details like that. So I tried to be like very specific so that when when things inevitably become dated, they seem like historical detail rather than like me trying to be timeless. Um, I think that I hope that there are timeless aspects to the book. And I I hope that there are things that that remain relevant for years to come. But I think I wanted to depict like a very real seeming life. uh, And in order to do that, you have to put in the fact that they're using an iPhone and like, what does the iPhone do? So one of the ways I tried to solve it was just by being super detailed. And the other, I just tried to remember, like, you know, There are books from the 19th century that we read and we just sort of gloss over references that we don't understand. Right. Or someone explains them to us and we're like, okay, cool. And then, you you know, we don't it doesn't if we can read really old books like we can write a contemporary novel that addresses things that exist now.
0: What's interesting, though, and and admittingly, I don't have the best memory, but I can't really recall the last time I saw a chorus used as a literary device in contemporary fiction. But Fake Accounts does this. It does this to my delight. Um, And the chorus is the narrator's ex-boyfriends. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because to me, that kind of seems and, you know, tell me if I'm wrong and who I should be reading if it's not the case. Um, But it seems like an old trick in a very new
1: setting. Yeah, I think um, I actually do know a, a recent novel, The Super Rationals by Stephanie Lakava, I think has a chorus mm-hmm. in it as well. But it's like a it's like a gossip chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, the ex boyfriend I thought worked well here because they your ex ex is someone who knows you in this very particular way and often in a way that you don't like. And you find, you know, you might think that their idea of you is a misrepresentation or not the full story. And you might sort of like resist that part of your background, but it doesn't go away. Um, So having them sort of interject themselves into the novel, which she's like, this is my novel. Like, get, you know, stop bothering me. Um, I thought was first really funny and also says something about how, you know, she's really like avoiding the. she's teasing, but also avoiding the idea of her, you know, herself in whatever way. And she's resisting it, um, showing it to the reader. And, and whenever these guys like show up, like it's like she's running into them at a bar and they're like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> and She's like, I know what you're thinking and shut up, you know, leave me alone. Um, so I think that that's what I was going for. Also, I, I a lot of, some of the sort of minor elements come from having worked in women's media, and that everybody in women's media, there's this sort of exaggerated representation of the ex-boyfriend as someone who's terrible and who you should never speak to. And mm-hmm. I thought it would be quite funny to sort of have a character who talks to all of her ex-boyfriends all the time, um, and I think they have a loving kind of relationship in the end. Oh, definitely, definitely,
0: and but again, it's it's that thing. You know, because in addressing this chorus, you're breaking the, the the fourth wall with the reader. And you're saying uh, yet again, like, I know, I know, you know, just like you were doing with like the section breaks. You're saying like, before you can tell me what this is, I know what this is. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Thank you. Um you. take a step further a bit by dedicating a segment of the book to, you know, this popular contemporary literary trend um, that the narrator clearly hates. It's so funny. I also don't know why people are so drawn to this form of writing, these, you know, brisk, short, meditative paragraphs with long line breaks that follow after the other and it's often associated with autofiction. I know you could talk about autofiction forever. (laughs) I would not mind hearing it. So there seems to be an obvious sort of disdain in the narrator, at the very least, in writing in this way. But I'm kind of writing, wondering if you like loved it, in the experience of it, you know, if in seeing it as a cheap trick and then actually taking it up as a form, was it kind of fun?
1: Oh, it was totally fun. And I think that's the appeal of cheap tricks, right? Like they were they were uh in a certain way. They they're sort of they're not working completely, but they have appeal an appeal. And the appeal is that it's super easy to write that way. Um and you know, I say this in the book, but you can really just throw anything in there. (laughs) And and it it has this sort of moody quality about it. And I, you know, I obviously don't think that all fragmented novels are bad. And, and there are all sorts of examples of of times when it it makes sense. But I think at that moment in the book, when I take up that form, the 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 narrator is really like grasping for some kind of structure and she was really like i'm gonna do this project she has like an ill-advised project that she's like Mm -hmm. embarking on by going on all these okay cuba days and she pretends like it's a political joke um but she's still doing it right and and the she is listening to a podcast while she's doing her babysitting job and hears an author on the podcast say like i was doing this structure because I'm a woman and I think it has something to do with being female because I have so much of my time is so chopped up because I have children and blah, blah, blah. And the narrator's like, this has nothing to do with being female. Um, and then she's like, maybe I'll try it. <laughs> uh, so I think I was hoping to model how, ideas how a book is formed right like sometimes where your ideas come from is super banal and and funny and um yeah i think that she's often sort of trapped in she, she gets she gets tripped into doing things that she doesn't like and has to sort of make them ironic in order to in order to justify her existence
0: Right, and as as you you know address a chunk of the text um, finds the narrator you know going on a series of online dates, she clearly enjoys being in a position of intellectual superiority in this project. It's precisely how she sets herself up on these dates and she, you know, intentionally toys with the idea of crafting different personalities to the point where she literally lists, you know, dear listener, one of her favorite movies in an online dating profile as persona. So yeah, she's, she's very much creating a series of fake accounts, but you know, you could also argue she's being her authentic, overconfident self on these dates, considering her initial approach to it from the get-go. I'm thinking specifically of this one line in the book, um, which I'm totally reading out of context and is in fact a about a scene with a dog, but I think it applies. It's on page 181. I was watching earned self-consciousness mutate into unearned self-preservation in real time, something I usually only saw online where it was easier for the unbelievable to remain that way. Instead of just asking you if, if like, is is there a death of the true self, Lauren? I, I'll just ask you to elaborate instead oh, more. That.
1: I mean, I, I mean, is there a death of the true self? I think <laughs> that's her. True, you know, I I firmly believe that the way whatever someone said. in any there's an Annie Dillard quote, quote that someone quoted to me in an interview that I, I don't remember, but uh-huh. the way we spend our time is like that's our that's who we are. So the way we spend our time is the way we are. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, whatever. <laughs> like, I don't. I'm not someone who remembers quotes. Um, and that's really what I think. So if you're someone who spends your time, you know, making fake accounts on the internet to, to be mean to strangers, or someone who spends their time making up elaborate but still kind of banal and boring fake personalities in order to like bamboozle your OKCupid dates, uh, who who are more or less often there in earnest that's who that's who you are um and so i think that her ability to perform so well in all of these different persona uh, is is an indication of her true self and she probably doesn't like it i th- i think I at least see part of the reason that she does it is this, she's sort of testing people. Like, I think there are little indications that she wants to be found out and she wants someone to say like, why are you being so weird? (laughs) But it requires real intimacy to notice that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for all their sort of stupid promises, like social media, what you know, social media and also online dating websites don't provide you know are not are not the best breeding ground for real intimacy right I think they encourage like a sort of you know they encourage people to declare things at each other (laughs) and and that's not what intimacy is
0: it is I, I completely agree with you but you know on on the other hand it is also kind of like deeply naked to just be like here is this here am I and I am lonely or I am horny or I am it's very kind of you know I hate to say putting yourself out there but in, in so many ways it really just is a kind of blatant call out that we wouldn't normally say in conversation
1: let's say right yeah absolutely I I think what I mean is that real intimacy comes from allowing another person to interpret you right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that if you are, and also interpreting them in return, um, and, and if you're, if you're making too too much of the subtext text, you are preventing them from seeing what they need to, to, to see you in the sort of language of therapy and stuff. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. so I think that that's what the book is trying to argue by putting so much in the text and and by allowing like these real sort of like painful moments to remain quite subtle but she you know i think that it ends up being you know some if you're asking someone to interpret you as if you say i'm horny or whatever and you're on a dating app and you're like i'm horny <laughs> what is the most likely outcome that you find someone who really will love you and, like, or it's that you have sex with someone one time? Right.
0: right. Which is
1: fine. I'm not saying that that's wrong. But it's mm-hmm. not, like, a, you know, fulfilling experience, at least whenever I've done it. <laughs> why okay, Cupid? Out of all the online dating platforms, why did you settle on that one? Um, because it allows for more narrative than tinder um, okay and also because i thought it would be quite the, i think the way that she chooses it is kind of realistic and that she has this very particular idea and she's like well i can't use the other platform because of this reason and actually it's completely arbitrary but she's often trying to like set set arbitrary parameters for things so that she can like make any kind of decision at all and yeah also okay, Cupid is just i think more interesting for constructing different personas from because it's much it's much more of like a like a, a an interface that doesn't involve like swiping swiping, 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 swiping. Even though obviously Tinder is more popular, right? I do think that there are other apps
0: coming out that are modeling more of the OK Cupid you know, sort of nuance because the other way was so, was so, such an obvious algorithm and no one wants
1: it to be an obvious algorithm. Yeah. They just want the algorithm to like do exactly what they want.
0: Right. As it should, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Um, my last question for you, again, also super indulgent for me. This interview is so fun for me. Uh, I, I just, one of the men in on the one of the dates in this novel identifies as a relationship anarchist you do a fairly good job of breaking down what R.I. means in the book itself. But I guess for those who haven't read the book yet, I would like you, you know, my current online
1: date to try to sell it to me. Okay. So Relationship Anarchy is a um, sort of, you know, oh God, how do I say it? He does it in the book. He does it in such a smooth yeah. practice. <laughs> like it's clear to the narrator from the very beginning that he's clearly done given this spiel so many times. Um, but obviously I have not I am not like a secret relationship anarchist so a relationship anarchist is someone who believes that there should be no hierarchy not only of romantic relationships so they're not they have this sort of like weird um rivalry with polyamorists and and it's like a friendly rivalry but but they're like actually polyamorists have tons of rules and these are real like anarchist these are sort of organizing relationships around anarchist principles so they Attempt to have no hierarchy of any kind of relationship. So, they reject the idea that a marriage. Well, first of all, they reject marriage, but they reject the idea that a romantic relationship should be more important and more primary than a friendship. And they also reject the idea of like, in this sort of elaborate way, like they reject the idea of a commitment that has that that impinges at all on another person's sort of right to make a choice. So they all the relationship anarchists sort of exist in this like hyper autonomous but like completely alone sort of space where they end up having sort of relationships like you know romantic relationships but they can't ask for a commitment <laughs> if that makes sense um and it's it's a real sort of like mind fuck uh <laughs> Idea that I find very compelling um, because it makes a lot of sense. You know, in some ways, it makes a lot of sense. Like, why are romantic relationships supposed to be primary? Like, why can't you have a primary friendship and then you have just like a side piece? But there are all right. sorts of like pre existing notions about relationships that really get in the way of this philosophy, like fully making sense. So when the narrator starts asking this guy that she's on, okay, keep it with, day with, who is trying to basically explain and sell relationship anarchy to her he's he sort of doesn't contradict himself but it becomes clear that he's just sort of trying to find his way right like he's trying to live life in a way that that makes sense to him and so she has real sympathy for him and mm-hmm. has a moment of sort of empathy before he's like a real jerk. And he's like, do you want to do it with me? And she's like, what do you mean, do I want to do it with you? And he's like, relationship anarchy. Do you, agree, do you agree to not agree? She's like, what do I agree to not agree to be in a relationship with you? And she's like, no. And he's like, I knew it. And then like, walks away. Um, and it's just, I wanted to illustrate the way that this sort of thinking can just tie you in knots and then you end up with nothing at the end. It's a real testament to you because you
0: really have just, like, broken down the scene. But I'm telling you, for anyone who hasn't read the book, it's still incomparable to, like, reading it yourself. It's a great, great, just – it's a great, really rewarding um, couple of pages. And also just,
1: like, organization and organized anarchy. It always makes me laugh. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's just impossible. Like, basically what you're saying is you're a single person – like it's either like you're a single person or you're a polyamorous person. Like it's all, it's just, it becomes way too abstract. And, and like relationship
0: itself, like to be in a relationship, you lose some of the autonomy, even if you don't want to. And you know, as you pointed out, like a lot of the socially normalized way that, for whatever reason, is is considered the normalized way. Inherent in the concept, right, of like being in a
1: relationship you lose a part of your autonomy. No, is that right? But I think it's, you know, ideally it's like a trade off. Like you lose things, but you also gain things. And I think there's like, there's nothing in life that doesn't have a downside. There's nothing really valuable in life that doesn't have a downside. I think you could think of a stupid, funny example, But, but part of this like, You know the twenty-something, you know the the millennial twenty-something who has it all together and is trying to figure out the world. I think a lot of that project is dedicated to the totally futile pursuit of trying to find a way that to live life that has no downside. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And mm -hmm. and there are lots of things in the novel that sort of speak to that sort of pathetic, (laughs) pathetic hope. well yeah the narrator is extremely
0: self-aware about you know her community in that way and it seems to me that she you know considers herself you know an outsider to a certain extent because she doesn't fall for that trap or she doesn't seem to fall for that trap but then you could argue that the whole book is also just entirely her
1: trauma yeah i think that she wants it to be she, doesn't, she can't fall for that trap, but she doesn't know where else to go. And I think a lot of her sort of analysis and sort of like recursiveness is really like trying to get out of it in some way. And I think that there is like a very small amount of hope there that is constantly disappointed. <laughs> She's constantly disappointed, but she does try in her own sort of highly annoying obnoxious way she's basically i think she's sort of testing people and i love her i do love her (laughs) she's trying but she has a lot of things that she won't sacrifice and i think that ultimately she gets a comeuppance for the way that she acts and sort of has to realize that she can't escape she can't escape her bad feelings about the world through knowing, you know, having this sort of superior knowledge and sort of like achieving superiority through knowingness. Um, did, yeah. did you always know the ending of the book? I did. I came up with the, the basic plot, which is like the three points mm-hmm. um, before I started writing. And I was like, that's really funny. I'm doing that. And it, because, it, because I had those, there's, you know, I'm saying there's a, the part at the beginning where it's this sort of apocalyptic structure where she, you think that the dramatic thing that's going to happen in the book is that she's going to break up with her boyfriend. She's like, the end is near. I'm going to dump him. That's Mm -hmm. what's going to happen in this book. Um, And then that doesn't turn out to be how it goes. (laughs) And, And then there's another thing that happens. So I knew those things, and because of that, it was quite easy to write in sections, um, sort of broadly, and then I filled it in from there. But I thought that, yeah, I mean, not to get very much away. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted it to be something where there's something, I wanted to try to do a realist novel. Like, if, this could happen. It's totally realism. But there are things in it that are super unbelievable, and they're, like, just on the line and, like, just on the border of... Not being believable but it could you know it could happen and i think to go back to something i was saying earlier bad things are happening all the time but they're very rarely the bad things that we expect <laughs> well no well, say what do you mean about that um i just think she's she's going through the book expecting you know the beginning is commenting on people saying that the world is about to end and people are constantly expecting Right, bad right. things to happen, um, and and she is too, but she can't, she can't. The th- the bad things that end up happening happening to her are completely something completely different from what she expects. Thank you, Lauren. That's that's everything for me. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. I really
0: appreciate it. Everyone, go out and buy fake accounts from Saint Henry Books, um, and tell me how much you loved it. Thanks. <laughs>